be here. Thanks to Anthony who invited me to this. Um, it's a joy to be with you. I love this church. I love the people of this church. That's my son saying that. Um, but um, Ephesians 4 says that God gives gifts to the church. Right? And some of them are teachers, apostles, pastors. And in that light, uh, Anthony didn't pay me to say this, he didn't tell me to say this, but in many ways, godly pastors are gifts to you, gifts to God's church. And I think Anthony is a gift to you guys. He's imperfect, he's kind of weird, Aaron's way cooler than him, he likes Arsenal, things like that. But he loves Jesus and he loves his family. And he loves the word of God and he feeds you the word of God. And for that, he's worthy of honor to be counted as a gift. And so I hope you view him as a gift. Last time I was here, it was a smaller group of, group of us. We were unmasked. It was pre-COVID. And I was defending complementarianism. And I left that without being called misogynistic or patriarchal, at least to my face. And I count that as a complete success. But today, we get to think about the things that are central, the things that we have in common. And this Easter season, we get to think about Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And so that's where we'll be today. If you have your Bible, we'll be in 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. That's where we're going to camp out. And here's what the Word of God says in 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may completely love you and worthily magnify your name. God, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Not long ago, uh, one of my children, who will remain unnamed, had a habit of waking up four, five in the morning, sneaking downstairs, finding the remote control, sneaking back upstairs and turning on the TV. She wouldn't even have the volume on. It would just, well, I just gave it away. But this child wouldn't have the volume on. It would, she just watched TV. This, on several fronts, was frustrating. The deceitfulness of my child, the, her own choice of rotting her brain, the insufferability of a tired child whose own insufferability led to them becoming more insufferable the rest of the day by being grumpy, etc., etc. So in the morning, as I woke up, walked upstairs, heard the faint sound or gleam of the TV, and without fail, the child would turn the TV off, hide the remote, and either say one of two things. I wasn't doing anything, or 
My brother did it. Why is that her reaction when she hears her dad coming upstairs instinctually, knowing she's wrong, knowing they have done something wrong? They deny. They blame shift. I didn't have to teach him that. I didn't walk in my house and say, Lord, it's Lauren's fault. It's her fault. I didn't do anything. But she just learned it, why she responded this way. Really, it's the human reaction ever since Eden. If you remember back all the way to Genesis 1 through 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, being deceived by Satan, their first reaction was this, to cover themselves and to hide. I think one of the most haunting questions in the entire Bible is the question from God after that. Where are you? Can you imagine that question? You're in perfect fellowship with the most beautiful being in the world. The most holy, righteous, good being. Face-to-face union. And then in a moment, you feel the need to hide from him. Like the best father in the world, you would hide. To cover. To run. And God calls out, where are you? And then Adam's bold response, well, this woman you gave me, right? Not my fault, God. You know, this woman, it's kind of your fault. You gave me it, right? He blames shifts. This universal instinct as we walk in the darkness is the same. For my daughter, for Adam and Eve, and for us to hide, to shift responsibility, to minimize, because we fear judgment. My daughter hides things because she fears the consequence of her action. She fears punishment. She fears judgment. And I wonder, it makes makes me wonder, I think it ought to make us wonder, what are the ways that we're hiding? What are we hiding? What are the things that we quickly try to hide away when they're brought up? Perhaps it's a marriage in shambles. So you kind of know couples generally, but you never let them get too close because they may see some of the brokenness. Perhaps it's harshness with your kids that you hate, you know you don't like, but you can't stop. And it's really these kids' fault anyway if they just listened. Perhaps it's on the computer late at night. Perhaps it's a drink too many, a bit too often, that you're able to cover up from the rest of the world. Perhaps it's a deep jealousy at the fate of others compared to yourself that you just passive, passively aggressive steam in. Perhaps it's deep regret that, that keeps you up at night that you've never told anyone about. Perhaps it's your own anger at God. What are the things that you don't want exposed? The things you hide away, what are you hiding from others? In what ways are you presenting yourself as someone that you know is inauthentic? but if they really knew your reputation, you think would be damaged. Or for fear of rejection, if someone really knew you. This text today beckons us ask, where are we in the darkness? A second question I think we have to ask is where are we hiding? Not just what are we hiding, but where are we hiding? Because sometimes we hide behind good things. 
And so we have these deep insecurities. We have the deep, these deep fears. And rather than deal with them, we just do more. Right? So let me sign up for about eight more Bible studies. Maybe that'll fix the problem. Right? If I'm busy enough, if I'm involved, if I'm doing things, if I'm keeping active, if for no other reason than to, than to numb the anger or the emptiness that we feel. Perhaps it's your job. Rather than do, do the soul work that sin requires, we just keep busy, keep getting affirmed as some sort of band-aid for a broken limb. Perhaps it's Instagram or Facebook or whatever social media that you use. Here you can curate your perfect image. You can capture the happy moments right after you yell at your kids to shut up and sit, sit still for a picture. And the consequence of our image is that we live in constant fear of being found out. Because people love this image that we curate, but if they really knew us, they wouldn't love us. So we can never really accept true love because they love this image of us rather than deeply knowing us. Where are you hiding? What are you trying to cover? The text today presents three things for us to see. There's a theological truth and there's two responses. Theological truth number one, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Personal response, walk in the light. Communal response, only true fellowship happens as we mutually walk in the light. In this Christian journey, there are no lone rangers. There are no lone Christians. And so there's something about God being light, and in him is there no, is there no darkness, that requires us to walk in the light that God provides. And then communally, to have fellowship one another means we help each other walk in the light. First theological point, God is light. The concept of light is kind of multifaceted. It can mean a lot of different things, right? In a sense, light is illuminating, like a light bulb, right? You think about teaching, people have a light bulb moment, right? There's an illumination that brings revelation of the truth. In another sense, it's navigating, like light shining on our path. It shows us the way. By lights, darkness is driven out. God shines light in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, we find in the Gospel of John. Like turning on a light in a dark room, the darkness has no power to overtake the light. Light drives out the hidden crevices of darkness. Even in the darkness, darkest night, or you're in the darkest room, and just a flicker of a flame, just the smallest candle can bring light to that whole room by one little flame. If you feel like a phony, if you feel like a failure, like you're always trying to present and you can never relax to be you, God is calling, why are you hiding? Why are you in darkness? Do you think God doesn't know? Do you think when God asked, where are you? He was just kind of searching for, I just lost him. Then why are we hiding from this one good thing, the only solution? the only salve to our souls. There is no darkness in God. God has nothing that he needs to hide from us. He can be his true essence because there is a lightness and a purity within himself. And if we follow the light of the world, the Christ who sets the example, who comes as the light of the world, then we're free to stop hiding. We're free to walk in the light, to expose those dark places of our hearts and to let the light in. God is our illuminating presence. 
shining forth his way, inviting us as participants to follow, on, to follow him. For by light we see, God is a lamp to our feet. He gives direction. He shows the way of the light, and then he carries a lantern for us to light the way. He sets direction. If you feel lost, if you feel like you don't know where you're going or what you're doing, if you're restless on this journey, God is both compass and lantern. He gives you the way and shines and shows force the way. Where light can sometimes be disoriented. You wake up in the morning, you turn on a light, and it's hard to adjust your vision to it. At times, it's hard to adjust our vision to God when we've walked in darkness so long. But if you think about it, no one desires to live their life in darkness. Can you imagine if there just were no sun, if there are no lights, if there are no electricity, and you had to navigate your whole life trying to walk blind? Why would why would you do that? And somebody could show us, there's a light. Just turn the light on. Right? And this reality that God is light is God showing us, there's a light for you guys. God is saying, look, I am the one who illuminates. I am the one who guides. I am the one who shines. I am the one for, for how which you see. Why would you stay in darkness? In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah it's called up to the presence of God. And when he sees the vision of God, he's undone. His first reaction, he's in the throne room of God. He sees the trail of his robe filling the temple, smoke coming up from him, seraphim all around him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And here's his first response. Woe is me. He calls judgment on himself. He said, I can't, I can't be here. I don't belong here. Woe is, bring your judgment upon me because there is something here that I can't experience. He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes that not just for himself, but the people that he comes from dwell in darkness, dwell in uncleanness. And he confesses, not just for himself, but for his community, that we are a people of unclean lips. And then an angel takes a burning coal and purges his lips. Isaiah realizes his sin, and God does something about it. So if God is light, God calls us to walk in the light without fear of judgment. But to not fear judgment in the presence of God, our sin needs dealt with. Like Isaiah, if if you just say, here I am, God, there's going to be some issues. We have issues. But here's what's required to walk in the light. To admit that we're disordered. That's it. We see the same thing in Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't clean himself up. He doesn't run and hide as much as he may have wanted to. He doesn't do eight more Bible studies and really gets his life together before God does the purging. He says, woe is me. Are we ready to say that? To admit that? That our sin is serious, that it affects us and it affects others. And are you ready to let God deal with that sin? 
that God's judgment on your life is just. And again, you don't need to clean yourself up. God is not saying, okay, you go take care of that, then you come. He calls, come and let me deal with it. God does the purging. The only thing that we need is the sin, the disorderedness, to bring that to the light. The idea of disorder is what St. Augustine calls sin. For Augustine, sin is disordered love when we desire things more than we desire God. And there are tons of ways to be disordered, right? So if you love good things, but you love them disorderedly, right? I can love my wife, but if I love my wife more than God, then my life is going to be disordered because I'm going to put things on my wife which she can never bear and never carry. It's good that I love my job, but if I love my job more than I love my family, then my life's going to be disordered because I'm going to experience lots of success in the workplace possibly, but then come home and be miserable. Right? So there's these good things that we ought to love, but love them in the proper order. And then there's things that ought not to be loved at all. There's no way to love drunkenness and just think, that's a, you know, I just need to order that. Right? You just don't love it. Right? There's bad things that ought not to be loved. But virtue. Walking in the light requires that we rightly order our loves. That St. Augustine says we love God and then love neighbor and then the rest of our loves are ordered from those two great loves. In that light, that that's what sin is, disordered love, I hope that we can see that we all have disorder. We all love things, desire things, even good things, that we make ultimate things that ends up destroying us. And I think we should be maybe a little bit liberal in even our evaluation of our own sin. I think we often get that reversed, that we're kind of conservative with our own sin and then maybe a little more liberal with other people's sin. Right? Here's where this may work. Well, that's just who I am. I'm an introvert, or I'm a five on the Enneagram, or I'm an INTJ, whatever it is. Right? It's just who I am. It's how God made me. Right? But then we judge others' sin liberally. So I'll give you an example. I'm an introvert. And so I can look at all you extroverts out there and think, well, you, you know, those extroverts, they just want to be the center of attention, right? They're just kind of seeking attention. And meanwhile, the, me, I mean, I think of myself as a refined introvert, someone who's uh, thoughtful, who's, who's reserved. But it couldn't be that I just don't love people enough or that I don't want to get out of my comfort zone enough to actually have conversations with people. That could never be it. It's just those vain extroverts who do that. Somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's problem. One of my favorite passages from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce develops this same theme. It talks about how much do we really want to expose our sin? How much do we really want to get rid of our sin? Lewis imaginatively in this, in this work pictures the afterlife, what it will be like in the ghosts here that I'll mention is a person visiting heaven kind of deciding if they want to stay. It's an extended passage, so bear with me, but I think you'll see it. I saw coming toward us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. And like all ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smoke differs. Some had been whitish, this one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smoke. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. 
off so soon, said a voice. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous, tyrant, tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap here, indicating the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop, so I should just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Do you want him to be killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it will be all right now. Thank you ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be much better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think it over very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm feeling frightfully well. I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be much silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for that operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but is, it isn't that. Really, it isn't. Let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. I, how can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you do, why didn't you kill it already without asking me before I knew it? It would be all over now, by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be some sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may, may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've, all, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Isn't that the way sin talks to us? Just put it down for a little bit. I'll be good. You're almost innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't. 
but supposing it did, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature than I may. Blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on the earth. The burning one closed its crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed on the turf. Do we care to get rid of our sin that way? Even when it hurts? Even when it costs something? Or are we comfortable to just quiet it down for a bit? To let it keep talking, keeping it around? How serious are we about walking in the light? Friends, walking in the light requires we deal with sin by not just silencing it, but by putting it to death. By allowing God to purge us. And the first thing that we do is we bring our sin to the light, that God is right about our sin. What he calls sin is sin. If we say we have no sin, the text says, we make God a liar. And I've lived long enough, which again, isn't very long, to know that if it's myself and God on a truth-falsehood scale, I'm probably going to go with God. So I'm okay being liberal about what I call sin in my life because I know my own disorderedness affects and seeps into every aspect of my life. And walking in the light requires that we would admit that we have sin, that our desires are disordered, that we pursue false things, that we lack a passion for justice, that we prefer our own comfort. And here's the beautiful thing about being liberal with our sin, is that we don't have to hide. Because the text says that God is faithful and he is just to forgive us. That all God requires is that we're honest with ourselves and we say, God, you're right about the state of my heart. Woe is me. And the purging is not cleaning up ourselves. The purging is not our own, but God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is able. He is reliable to deal with our sin. He is just that he takes the payment that he requires. On the cross, God is seen as both just, the consequence of sin is death, and justifier that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That God is both of those things. That God is light, that God is faithful, that God is just. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news that we proclaim. And it's why we can freely bring our sin into light without fear of judgment, without fear of punishment, because the judgment is, has been delivered. The purging has been paid. So we have confidence then to approach God. We have the confidence to say, here I am, God. And know God is a father who doesn't dole out punishment, but who extends his arms in welcome. The blood of Jesus truly cleanses us from our sin. And here's the last thing quickly. That the last thing it means for us corporately is that we as a church help each other walk in the light. To be the type of place where we can be open with our own mess, with our own brokenness. And to know that we won't meet, that that won't be met with judgment from the people. Like my child hiding from me in their sin, we're a place where we honor those people who walk in the light. That in my good moments that I can say, sweetie, I love you. You're safe. 
Why would you hide from daddy? We don't sit over each other in judgment, but we open ourselves up for loving embrace and the light. The thing to be feared, the thing that warrants judgment is darkness. You can see this in popular culture as we see pastors and apologists walking in darkness and then what's met for them is judgment. What's what's met for them is their lives blow up. It's only when we can walk in the light where true fellowship happens, where true fellowship with God and one another happens. The thing we ought to be scared of, the thing we ought to be afraid of is our pursuit of darkness, where we grow content in our sin, when we don't really care about each other, when we treat each other as casual acquaintances who are indifferent toward each other's eternal consequences, where we think, well, that's not really my problem when someone's in sin or in darkness or persisting in a blind spot. That's the thing that ought to be feared. And the thing about a blind spot that we can't see it, right? Hence the blind spot. So we need each other to see our sin more clearly and lovingly point out the ways that we may be walking in darkness. It's only those mutually walking in light that can have fellowship with one another. And isn't that our heart's desires? Isn't that we want more than anything? Isn't that why we curate our image on social media so that we can love and be loved? And how much of our disorder is a result from disorderly pursuing that good goal. Hear this. In Christ, at your baptism, before you did anything good or bad, Christ says these words over you. God God says these words over you. My beloved son, my beloved daughter, in you I'm well pleased. Church, The Father says that about you before you did anything and today. And so with the Father's love and in the Son's light, let us walk in this light by the Spirit's power. There's nothing to be afraid of here. God already likes you. He's already pleased with you. There is no longer any judgment to fear. The triune God's arms are open to us prodigals. And the first step, the way we start, is by turning home toward the light. Let's pray. Father God, you do good and you are good to us. We thank you that you are light, that you drive out darkness, and we pray that you would drive out the darkness of our own hearts, that we would be confronted with our own sin and our own disorderedness that we would love each other enough to care for each other in these ways. Help us to have fellowship with you. Help us to have deeper fellowship with one another, to love each other and to be loved in return. God, may you be among us. May you give us grace to bear with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.